0: Father, we bring you praise and we bring you honor and we bring you glory because your son, Jesus Christ, is our only hope in life and death. And because of what he's done, we can have hope even in the face of death. Father, we know through the power of his perfect finished work that the end of our testimony is not death, but resurrection. And that's our prayer this morning, Lord. That's our desire above everything else is that we would seek to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. We would place our lives firmly within your hands. We can sing with confidence of knowing that even if you send the waves, it's only to draw us closer and not to push us back. So Father, will you now use your word to speak to our hearts truth that you would have us hear and see and know and understand and believe. Use your word to make us more like your son, Jesus. Father, free us of sin, free us of slavery to ourselves and to our desires as we walk in the victory of the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, if you're not there already... I'm going to invite you to turn within your Bibles this morning, Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 today. And if you are uh, joining us for the first time today here in person or online, we uh, as a church family this fall have been walking verse by verse through the book of Philippians. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be wrapping this up here in just a few weeks as we begin to close out uh, 2020. And today we're just going to pick right back up where we left off last week, looking at verses 1 through 11. Uh, Earlier this year, after we had gotten through the peak of pollen season uh, here in Beaufort, our house was... Was desperately in need of a good pressure washing. And so we have a blue house, but uh, this year in particular, it had taken on this very unique shade of like ugly brownish, like yellowish green, you know what I'm talking about, like just the, the nasty pollen that gets caked onto things. And so I do have a pressure washer, but it's really more light duty. It's not meant for for more heavy duty jobs at our house that this year round was definitely a heavy duty job. And so I'd used it on walkways, on our porch area, but you know, I thought to myself like, hey, I've got a little bit of time this weekend. I've got a pretty decent sized ladder. I think this thing might be strong enough. We've got a two story home. I was like, I think I might be able to knock this out uh, myself. But as I I I, uh, sought to begin this work, and as I started the work, it became immediately clear uh, that I did not have what I needed to get it done. Uh, I get up on the ladder. It's, I've got about 12 foot ladders, decent size, but even at that, it didn't reach about the top third of our roof. And then uh, this one particular side of the house that I was on, there was really bad glare from the sun. So it was really hard to tell what was actually getting clean versus what was just getting wet from the water. Uh, and then more than that, I have horrible allergies. I mean, horrible allergies. Like as the, all the pollen everything is just peeling off the side of the house, my eyes are turning red, my throat's itchy. So I'm literally, I'm standing, at the top of the ladder. I'm like reaching up as high as I possibly can. I've got my head turned away. I'm sneezing my head off. And then uh, after about two hours working on this one side of the house, which by the way was the smallest side of our house, I I stepped back just to see where I was at and I had only gotten about 60% of it done. And it was in that moment the Lord revealed something to me. And that it's that somebody else needed to come do this job. (laughs) And I, I just said, who am I a mere mortal to argue with the Lord. And so I said, yes, Lord, your, your will be done. And uh, so we, we put in the word with some friends and said, hey, who do you know who's reputable, who could do a good job? And so uh, we got hooked up to a guy and he uh, rolls up to our house and it became abundantly clear early on that he did have the resources to get this done. Uh, he rolls up into our driveway and he's got this uh, industrial grade pressure washer. It's got its own dedicated trailer. I am not in this world whatsoever. And so I could be wrong on, on this, but I looked at the model. I Googled it. This thing was 25. Five thousand dollars It had this tank that was several hundred gallons. It was like hot water. It was gas powered and then he pulls out the hose and attaches what I assume to be some sort of military like grade weapon that he attaches to the end. He has no ladder whatsoever and and he just says hey uh, I'll let you know when when I'm wrapping up things out here. It's like that's no problem. So uh, I go inside watching a movie with our boys. We hear him outside you know he's moving from uh, side to side around the house. Saw him take a couple of laps you know, around through the back window 45 minutes after he'd started. 45 minutes, he comes to the door and he says, hey, you're all good. And in my mind, I'm like, there's no way. I was, I was on that one side of the house for two hours. I didn't even touch it. And I had a ladder and you don't even have a ladder. Like what's like, there's no way this is already done. But sure enough, we walked outside and our house was completely spotless. And here's why. He was able to do a job I couldn't do because he had access to resources I didn't have. And when it comes to our faith in Christ, when it comes to pursuing righteousness in Jesus Christ, even with our very best religious effort, we do not have the resources to attain righteousness on our own. Even in our very best religious works, we do not have it within ourselves to wash ourselves clean of sin. And so until we renounce our ability to wash ourselves clean and call on someone greater who has the resources that we need, We're gonna remain dead in our sins. So today, in Philippians 3, we're gonna see two very different pictures. One is man-centered, and that picture is of the superficial pretense of religion. It's the attempt that we make to earn salvation on our own through our external obedience and righteousness. And the second picture is very different. It's of the supernatural power of resurrection. It's God-centered. It focuses on his power and his strength and his resources and how he alone is qualified to cleanse us of our sins. So let's go back to Philippians 3. We read this again just a few moments ago, but it's for repetition this morning. Let's read again from Philippians 3, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes here, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a, persecuted, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So the first picture we see here this morning, again, is one that's man-centered, and it's of the superficial pretense of religion. Paul starts out here in chapter 3, verse 1, with the word, finally. Now, uh, Philippians is four chapters long. It's a short book. We're only beginning chapter three this morning. So uh, many have said and, and just noted on this particular passage that Paul is your typical preacher. When he says finally, you know that it means he's about halfway done. He's, he's just now starting to round the corner. It's not completely accurate. You know, there are ways he's using that word finally to uh, summarize the previous section and then also to set up the previous section. And here's what he says. Finally, rejoice in the Lord. This is Paul's uh, first call to rejoice. There's going to be another one that we'll see in a couple weeks in chapter 4, a famous passage of Scripture where he says, Philippians four: rejoice in the Lord Always, and again I say rejoice. So the primary emphasis here is not in the act of rejoicing. The primary emphasis here is in the object of our rejoicing. Rejoice where? In the Lord, period. As in rejoice in the Lord alone. Rejoice in the Lord only. Rejoice in the Lord exclusively. So you might ask the question, as opposed to what? What? And, and that's what Paul goes on to answer here in the next few verses. So when we get to verse 2, uh, Paul begins warning the Philippians about a group of religious teachers who were known as the Judaizers. And uh, the Judaizers, if you don't know, They were a Jewish religious sect. They were teaching that salvation could not come through faith in Christ alone. They were teaching uh, that that, that salvation came through faith in Christ plus obedience to the Jewish religious law, uh, particularly the act of circumcision. Uh, That was the covenant sign that God had given to the nation of Israel as a flesh and blood covenant between God and man. It was that act of circumcision that set them apart from the rest of the nations. And if you go to the book of Acts, uh, what we see is that there were many Gentiles who were not of Jewish background. They were coming to faith in Christ, um, but there were some who were teaching that that was not adequate enough, that they were simply expressing faith in Jesus. They were saying that they needed uh, to also begin following the Jewish religious law and that, that circumcision was going to be required for salvation. So if you look at uh, uh, Acts 15.1, you see the heart of their message here. It says that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so that was their message. It wasn't sufficient to simply have faith in Jesus if you were a Gentile. You also had to follow uh, the historically Jewish practices. And then the rest of Acts 15, this is known to us as the Jerusalem Council. It's one of the first major conflicts within the early church. And uh, here it was affirmed that faith in Christ alone was sufficient for salvation of the Gentiles and that circumcision was not going to be uh, laid on them as a requirement for salvation. All the men were very happy about that. Um, some of you don't get that joke, but I don't have time this morning. And that's the message that was being preached by some in Philistines. Philippi, that they they continued preaching this message is that faith in Jesus Christ was not sufficient. It has to be faith plus these works. So with biting criticism here, Paul assigns to them three very, what would have been offensive labels. He says in verse two, he says, look out for the dogs. Now this is a little bit more difficult for us to comprehend because uh, in many ways we live in a culture where we value animals more than our own children. I'm only half joking about that. Uh, Religiously here, though, dogs were considered unclean animals. They were not man's best friend in this cultural context. They were wild, they were untamed, they were diseased. Historically, the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other, and it was typically the Jews who would uh, offend the Gentiles, and they would make fun of them, and they would degrade them by calling them dogs. But here Paul flips the script. He says it's the Judaizers who are the dogs because they're teaching a false gospel of faith plus works instead of faith in Christ alone. So because of this, verse 2, he also calls them evildoers. He calls them those who mutilate the flesh. Again, for the Jewish people, circumcision, that physical act, was the sign that was given to them as God's covenant blessing on the nation of Israel. It was a flesh and blood covenant. But what Paul is saying here is that those who were teaching that requirement on top of faith in Jesus, he says for that group of people, circumcision is no matter a physical marker that sets them across as the people of God. He says that's now something that marks you out for condemnation. When you teach this false gospel, when you corrupt the message of the gospel, he says, by teaching faith in Christ plus your religious works, he says, you're corrupting the message of the gospel, you're an evildoer, you're doing nothing more than mutilating the flesh. So if they preach that requirement, they're preaching a false gospel, and the mark that they have on their bodies actually identifies them now as those who will face the judgment of God. And so this is a stiff warning from Paul. Turn with me in your Bibles uh, back just a few pages to uh, Galatians chapter 1, and uh, we're going to read here in just a moment verses 6 through 9, because Paul had written this letter to the church in Galatia to combat much of the same religious legalism that he's addressing in Philippians 3, but here I think in Galatians 1 verse 6, we see the stiff warning that he has for those who would add to the message of the gospel as they were doing. It's Galatians 1 verses 6 through 9. Paul says, I am astonished I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen to this in verse 8. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. So that's the warning that he has. He says, if I come to you, if an angel from heaven comes to you, preaching a different gospel other than grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, that person is a curse. They are to be cut off from God. They're to be cut off from salvation in Jesus Christ. So church, this is a key distinction that we need to make here this morning. While faith in Christ will result in works, our faith in Christ is not the result of works salvation is not a matter of Jesus plus your religious effort. Salvation is a matter of Jesus, period. It's completely and totally the work of Christ and not any sort of work that we add to that or do on top of this that brings about our salvation. So uh, going on back to Philippians 3 in verse 3, Paul says here, he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So uh, many ways here, Paul is making a uh, a doctrinal confession because he speaks to God the Father, he speaks to the Son, he speaks to the Holy Spirit. And he says, this is the mark of true believers. This is the mark of true believers, not sort of in any, any sort of physical mark on our body, not sort of any uh, out, out sort of uh, religious expression. He says it's purely the mark of the fact that we worship the triune God, the God who's three in one. He says, this is what sets us apart. So our confidence is not in any religious work. And if anyone had confident reason to be confident in their religious works, it was Paul. But listen to how he reads his resume here in verses four through six. He says, if you think you have uh, confidence in your religious resume, he said, listen to mine. This is what he says. He said that he had religious rituals. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He said, I had national citizenship. I'm of the people of Israel. He said, I had family heritage. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He had ethnic identity, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had spiritual devotion. As to the law, a Pharisee. Those who were most strict in their adherence to the Jewish religious code. He had radical allegiance. He said, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He worked so hard to defend the Jewish faith that he would stamp out anybody who was perceived to be a threat. He said, I had moral obedience. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Over 600 Old Testament laws, Paul says, I was acing every single one of them. Every single one of them. He says, whatever spiritual resume you think you have, mine is better. And yet for those of us who are in Christ, we put no confidence in these things. We put no confidence in these things. actually the exact opposite. Look at how Paul now speaks of that sterling religious resume here in the next few verses. Let's read verses 7 through 11. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, "...and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him." and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So we saw the superficial pretense of religion, and now Paul shows us the supernatural power of resurrection. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I want you to think about it like this for just a moment. Uh, you log in today to an online bank account, and depending on your bank account, uh, you know, for some of us, this is more of an enjoyable experience than others. You know, some of us, we treat that bank account like a magic eight ball, it's like maybe if I shake it, you know, I'll get a different result, and uh, things will change, but but you log into your bank account, and if you're like most, you know, you typically have a little bit more in the debit column than you do in the credit column, and, and so you're going through on one side, you've got a debit column, that's money that you've spent, you go to the other side, there's a credit column, that's money that's come in, those are things that you've gained. and. and unfortunately, Unfortunately, many of us view our relationship with the Lord just like this. Many Christians, whether they understand it or not, many, many of us actually operate as functional Muslims, but because life and relationship with Jesus, it's all about what's going into the credit column, and it's all about what's coming out of the debit column, and so here's how we tend to frame oftentimes our relationship with the Lord. I do good things, I obey the word of God, I follow the will of God, and that's points in the credit column. But then I sin, and I disobey God, and I fall away from the Lord, and all of that goes then into the debit column. And so uh, I just want to live my life to where I've got more in the plus column than I do in the minus column. And what Paul is saying here in these verses is that it's not Christianity. This is everything that I had gained, everything that I thought was in the credit column, everything that I thought was on the positive side, he says, now I've counted all of that as loss. Why? For the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. He says there's nothing that touches coming to know Jesus Christ. Everything he thought was a win, he counts it now as a loss. He knows that there's nothing that touches the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. All of his religious resume, all of his works, all of the the good that he had done up to this point, verses 8 and 9, he calls it all rubbish. That's a really nice word to, to talk about, dung or excrement. That's what Paul says He says, that's what I count all of those things now to be. So his national and ethnic and family heritage, his religious position and his accolades, his perfect adherence to the moral code, Paul now says every bit of that. He says, all that good that I thought was in the credit, he said, it's nothing more than a full bucket at the bottom of a porta potty compared to knowing Jesus. And Paul's not the only one throughout scripture. Paul uses intense language to talk about the imperfection of our righteous effort. But we see this as well through the words of the prophet Isaiah. Apart from Jesus, even what we think is righteousness in the credit column is actually sin in the debit column. And, and God's word uses graphic language to describe our personal efforts at righteousness apart from Christ. This is what Isaiah said. He said, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The phrase polluted garment that's used there, I'm not, not trying to be crass here. This is the literal interpretation. The phrase polluted garment refers to used cloths from a menstrual cycle. Isaiah said that's what our righteousness looks like in the eyes of a perfectly holy God. It's offensive to him. Any notion that we can be righteous on our own, any notion that we can earn salvation ourselves, every attempt that we make to make ourselves righteousness apart from Jesus, it's offensive and sinful in the eyes of God. The question is often asked, how could a loving God send good people to hell? And the answer is pretty simple, is that he doesn't and he never has. Because his word's abundantly clear that there are no good people. Romans 3 does not say that we're born good, it says that we're born guilty. It says there is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one who is Righteous. We're not born good, we're born guilty, and all of our attempts at goodness apart from Jesus Christ are nothing more than sin in the debit column. Our righteousness does not come through obedience to the law. Our righteousness comes only through faith in Christ. And theologically, I put this in your notes this morning, theologically, uh, we call this the doctrine of imputation. This is one of my favorite doctrines to study. And, and just in a, a quick summary way, this is what imputation teaches us. It teaches us that God thinks of the righteousness of Christ as belonging to us. So again, that this is the good news for those who are in Christ. It says uh, that even in our best religious effort on our own, we have absolutely no way of washing away our own sins. We have no way of earning righteousness on our own. But when we put our faith in Jesus, what happens is God imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ on our imperfect sinfulness. And so when God looks at us, this is amazing, God looks at us and he thinks of Jesus. He looks at us and he doesn't see us in our sin. He doesn't see the filthy rags of our broken righteousness. He sees only, always, and continually perfection through Jesus Christ. That's what's imputed to those who are in Christ. We have the total impossibility of trying to earn salvation on our own, trying to become righteous on our own. But through faith in Jesus, God thinks of the righteousness of Christ as ours. That's good news, right? This is really good news for us. And that's why Paul says, look, there's nothing, there's nothing that touches knowing Jesus because there's nothing to compare to a god who's so loving and so merciful that he would see me in my filth and my unrighteousness and my wickedness and he would still in his mercy give me the perfect righteousness of his son Jesus Christ that's why Paul says his desire above all else is to know Christ is to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, it's, it's amazing. Since Paul came to faith in Christ, his life on the outside has become significantly worse. I mean, just just look at the trajectory of Paul's life since he came to know Jesus. He's been severely beaten. He's been persecuted for his faith on the run for his life and nearly dies on multiple occasions. One time they thought he was dead. And then they, we, we see his reputation's been publicly tarnished and destroyed, even within the church. People don't think he's legitimate because he used to be a persecutor of Christians. Like, he has to face that. People are constantly questioning his motives, questioning his authority. He's writing these words from prison. He's lost status and riches and accolades and safety, and yet his primary desire is not to know comfort. His primary desire is to know Christ. That's what he desires above all else, that I may know him. Above all else, he wants Jesus and the power of his resurrection, and he's confident that he's going to live even if he dies. Paul knew the warnings and the promises that had been given by Jesus earlier to his disciples. John 15, this is what Jesus warned his disciples of. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But then this is what he promises in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus anticipates these things. He says, this is what's coming for you if you follow me. He says, but rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul understands this. He understands this. He he knows that if this was the way it was going to be for Christ, this is the way it's going to be for us. He says, if Christ was going to go through crucifixion, that means you and I may go through crucifixion. But this is the beauty of the gospel is that our story does not end in crucifixion. Our story ends in resurrection. That's not the end of the story, no matter what happens to us in this life. So that's why Paul says, by all means possible, whatever it takes, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever struggle I have to go through, whatever suffering I have to endure, whatever pain I have to feel and to experience, whatever it takes, by all means, I want to know you. And I want to know the power of your resurrection. So finally, we're halfway done, all right? Finally, how can we know Christ in the power of his resurrection? How can we know Christ and how can we know that same power of resurrection that was experienced by Paul? A few applications here. First, we've got to be on guard against man-centered legalism. We have to be on guard against this. Paul had warned them in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Look out for those who teach that the gospel is Jesus plus something else. Look out for those who would corrupt the pure message of the gospel. And listen, we have to be careful because sometimes this is explicit and it's abundantly clear, but sometimes it's more implicit. We just have to dig beneath the surface and see what's being added to the gospel to dilute its message. And, you know, unfortunately today, probably if you've spent any amount of time in the church whatsoever, you you can see this and attest to this. Unfortunately today, uh, the suffocating grip of legalism continues to choke out true life and joy in Christ in many different circles. Some legalisms are silly. You know, it's that style of dress on Sunday morning why the carpet has to be green or why it has to be red, styles of music, uh, this is a real thing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I don't have time to explain it this morning, but uh, why soft drinks aren't allowed in the church fellowship hall, that's a thing in some circles. Like, it's, it's, so, so some legalisms are, are completely silly, and, and we add on all these man-made rules on top of faith in Jesus, whether implicit or explicit, and it just chokes out life and joy in Jesus. Just totally chokes it out. But in the case of Philippi, legalism is far more serious because you had a group that was teaching that faith in Christ alone was not sufficient for salvation. And that's a distortion of the message of the gospel. And again, today, explicitly even, this legalism still abounds. So you'll find in different, uh, very rigid fundamentalist circles today that uh, uh, it might not come right out and say it, but when you really get down to the nitty gritty, we know that it's true, would say that, uh, yes, uh, you need to have faith in Jesus, but then also uh, women have to dress a certain way, not allowed to wear makeup, not allowed to wear any sort of jewelry. Yes, you need to have faith in Jesus, but uh, you have to also stop going to movie theaters, no TV, no secular music, if you're gonna be a true Christian. Yes, you can have faith in Jesus, but it's gotta be Jesus and you have to use a 1611 King James Bible, which is always funny to me because none of those people actually have the 1611 King James Bible because it was written in Old English. So we add these rules on. Again, yes, you you need faith in Jesus, but you also must completely abstain from alcohol, even though biblically that's taught as a wisdom issue, a matter of conscience. We can have discussion on these things, but like circumcision, we're not careful. All these things become external badges of righteousness. And we sort of wear them as like, look at what I have added. Look at what I'm doing in my own strength and my own power. And if we're not careful... If we're not careful what should be matters of personal conviction, if we implicitly begin to add them to the gospel, they don't become markers of our righteousness, they become markers of our judgment. They single us out as those who have diluted the perfectly pure message of the gospel. It's one thing to have personal convictions, but the moment we begin to make them requirements of salvation and, and tests of true Christianity church, we drift into that, we are flirting with our own destruction. Salvation is not a matter of Jesus plus our religious efforts. Salvation is a matter of Jesus, period. Faith in Christ alone and his perfect finished work. And listen, let's let's not uh, have a truncated gospel. We understand that when we believe in the message of the gospel, again, it will result in works. We will turn from our sins, we will cease our sins, we will follow Christ, we will become righteous and holy and have renewed hearts and minds and desires, but salvation results in works, it is not the result of works. Listen, legalism will lead us as a church to one of two places. Either we become a bunch of holier-than-thou, self-righteous religious Pharisees, We become the measure of righteousness. Here's our standard. Everybody else needs to meet this standard and look at us because we're the ones that's doing it right. So we'll go to that extreme of holier-than-thou self-righteousness or this happens as well sometimes. And I know this is the story of many even within our own church family. We break under the crushing burden of the legalism. And we just come to the conclusion, I can't do this. And so if I can't do it, then why should I try? And so what many end up doing is they walk away from the church completely and they'll just double down on sin. Because what they say to themselves, is like, look, if I can't keep up with the rules and and I can't be a Christian if I'm not doing all these things, if I'm going to die and go to hell anyway, I might as well have fun on the way. We have to, like the plague, literally, we have to avoid the cancer of man-centered legalism. Yes, we can have open conversation about personal convictions and and how we should be living our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, but we have to be very, very careful that we do not take our personal convictions and impose them on the message of the gospel, or we mark ourselves out for our own destruction. Second, uh, renounce all confidence in your spiritual resume. You want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Renounce all confidence in your spiritual resume. So I just want to go back to where we were looking at Paul's story a few moments ago. You know, for, for many of us, just, just like Paul, salvation is, I, I say many of us, for all of us, just like Paul, salvation is not found in any sort of religious ritual. He said he was circumcised on the eighth day. So for us, a little bit more modern context, we have to understand we're not saved because we've been baptized. We're going to celebrate baptisms Uh, later today. A few folks are taking that next step, and as I stand there and baptize, we'll make that known. Like it is not this act that saves us; it's faith in Jesus that saves us. We're not saved because we've been baptized. Uh, Depending on your 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 background, your context, we're not saved uh, because we've walked an aisle or because we've prayed a prayer, because we raised a hand, because we filled out a card. You're not saved because you attended a confirmation class, because your family name is on a church membership roster. We're not saved by any sort of religious ritual. We're not saved by national citizenship. You're not a Christian because you are born in the United States of America. We're not Christians just because of where we're born geographically. You're not Christian through family heritage. You're not a Christian because you were born into a Christian home, because your father was a pastor, your grandfather was a pastor, because your ancestors built the church building, because the family name is engraved on a church pew. You're not saved through ethnic identity. Paul said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, so we're not saved because we are a, a Christian of Christians or an American of Americans. We're not saved because of these things. We're not saved by our spiritual devotion. We're not saved because we attend church every single week, never miss a Sunday, and always tithe 10%. And we give and we serve and we go on mission trips and we read the devotional book with out-of-context Bible verses every day. We're not saved by these things. We're not saved by radical allegiance. Someone's not a Christian just because they're on TV every single night fighting the culture wars and working to extinguish every perceived threat to Christianity. We're not saved through moral obedience. Just because you're, you're perfect, you've never gotten drunk, you've never done drugs, you've remained sexually pure, you're careful about what's on your TV, none of these things bring us salvation. None of these things bring us salvation. We cannot wipe ourselves clean with the filthy rags of our righteousness. You and I are saved only because God in his mercy saw us in our need and he imputed to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is why we're saved. We're made saved. We're righteous because God in his mercy saw us in our need and he gave us the perfection of his son. And you will not know Christ. You will not know the power of his resurrection as long as your confidence is in the superficial externals of man-centered religion. And last, we pursue Christ regardless of the cost. Paul said, by all means, whatever it takes, by all means, I want to know Christ. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Um, if Philippians 3.10 is a it's a very personal verse for, for me and for uh, my, my family. Many of you know my story. Uh, my dad passed away at the end of 2011 um, from cancer. It was a four-year battle. And um, during that, that journey with cancer, uh, he, would, he had a prayer team that would be praying for him uh, on, a, on a weekly basis, a monthly basis. He'd send out different updates. At the end of every email, uh, this was his signature. This was his sign-off. In his grip, Tommy Burgess, Philippians 3.10. And then that's the verse that that really carried him uh, through those four years, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, whatever it takes, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And uh, this week um, marks for our family, it's nine years since the last time we sat in the, the, the home that I had grown up in around uh, the Thanksgiving table together as a family. Uh, my dad was coming off a terrible year. I mean, just just a terrible year. He has, uh, many of you have walked this journey with, with families, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, you've had loved ones walk through this. He was uh, traveling to and from MD Anderson, you know, multiple times a year, and um, th- this particular year at Thanksgiving, I mean, he was just suffering through a terrible bout of the shingles. I, I mean, just was absolutely just physically decimated in every way. And cancer just, it just robbed everything for my family. It-, it robbed him physically, it robbed him emotionally, it robbed him financially, in-, in many ways spiritually. And I remember this particular week at Thanksgiving, I'm just sitting there and I'm watching my dad in so much pain. He's on oxygen. My dad was a big, strong guy, but, I mean, just had been physically decimated because of what he was experiencing uh, with, with cancer. And, um, and, and so I remember just sitting there watching him, What he, just kind of as he was just kind of struggling through. Uh, the, the feeling of the shingles just went through an intense few moments of pain. And, and I, just, I just sat there, I just remember praying, like, Lord, my dad is the most faithful follower of Christ I've ever known. I mean, he served the church, he loved the Lord, he was a bivocational minister for a season. He worked as an accountant for a, a large Christian ministry and, and just loved pastors, loved the church, faithfully served week in and week out. Never knew a more faithful follower of Jesus than my dad. And I'm just asking the question like, Lord, how are you letting this happen to him? And I so desperately wanted to see my dad be healed. I wanted to see him be made strong again. I'd been married just the year before, I wanted him to see him, I wanted to see him hold my grand, his, his grandkids one day and praying, Lord, please take this from him. But we sat down uh, at the dinner table, sat down at the dinner table, and it was uh, sort of a family tradition. We would go around the table and everybody would pray. It was the last time I would ever hear my dad pray. Remember remembered at that Thanksgiving, he prayed these specific words. He prayed these words, Lord, in my living and in my dying, above all else, I want to know you. In all the suffering, he wasn't praying for comfort, he was praying to know Christ. And a few weeks later, because my dad knew Christ, he would go on to know comfort. This is is what my dad understood. And this is what I've I've kind of come to understand and, and, and trying to understand a little bit more. But this is what I think a lot of times we miss as followers of Jesus. It's that God answers every prayer for healing if you're in Christ. God answers every single prayer for healing. He just doesn't always answer it in the way that we want. Yeah, many of you, uh, I'm, I'm sure, you, you might be familiar with uh, the, the teaching ministry, the preaching ministry of Pastor Tony Evans. Show of hands, I may be familiar with Tony Evans, a great, fantastic Bible teacher. Very few voices I respect more than Pastor Tony. And, and you might know that earlier this year, his wife Lois passed away uh, after her own battle with cancer. And uh, his son Jonathan re- delivered the eulogy um, at her uh, service that day. And uh, it's it went completely viral. Uh, if you've not seen this, if you've not watched it, uh, you're welcome. I'm going to give you about a 10 minute assignment this afternoon. You'll be glad that you did this. I want to read just an excerpt from this this morning because this is what it means to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. He said this, he said to those in attendance, I was wrestling with God because I said, if we have victory in your name, didn't you see us when we were praying? Didn't you see the cancer? Didn't you hear us? Why didn't you do what we were asking of you? And as I was wrestling with God, he answered and he said, number one, you don't understand the nature of my victory because just because I didn't answer your prayer your way doesn't mean that I haven't already answered your prayer anyway. He said, there was always only two answers to your prayers. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. The two answers to your prayer are yes and yes, because victory belongs to Jesus. That's what it means to know him. That's what it means to know him and the power of his resurrection means that no matter what I'm going through right now, like one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to make it or I'm going to make it. Either I'm going to have joy or I'm going to have joy. I'm gonna be healed or I'm gonna be healed. I'm gonna live or I'm gonna live. I'm gonna have victory or I'm going to have victory because his two answers are yes and yes. This is what it means to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. I just wanna ask you this morning, is it possible, is it possible that you have only ever known the superficial pretense of religion and you have never experienced the supernatural power of resurrection? Is it possible that you've known about Christ but you've not known Christ? Is it possible that you've known the power of man, but you've never experienced the power of God? I'm not asking you this morning, were you born into a Christian home? Were you baptized? Did you pray a prayer at vacation Bible school when you were six? I'm asking you this question this morning. The only question that matters in eternity is, do you know Christ? Do you know Christ and the power of his resurrection? And the good news of the gospel is that today you can you can lay it all down. You can quit putting your confidence in your resume and your strength and your ability, and you can know Christ. Will you bow your heads with me here for just a moment as we close things up today? It's a simple question. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ and the power of his resurrection? Or have you just been playing the games of man-centered religion? And today, are you willing to renounce that? Are you willing to lay down your spiritual resume and put your full faith and confidence in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? So the prayer for you this morning is simple. It's just to go to the Lord and say, I want to know you. I don't just wanna know about you. I wanna know you. I don't just want to be in church. I want to know Christ. I don't wanna know the pretense of religion. I wanna know the supernatural power of resurrection. You can turn from your sins. You can go before the Lord. You can confess your sins. Some of us sins of unrighteousness. Some of us sins of righteousness. Of thinking we can do it on our own. You can turn from your sin and you can put your faith in the perfect finished work, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and call on his name and be saved. So if that's you this morning, if that's your heart and that's your desire, it's to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want you to use that Next Steps card we've given you today. Those of you online, use that online Next Steps card this morning. Communicate that to us. You're gonna trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. We have prayer team members in the back. You could pray with them even before you leave today and our staff can follow up with you throughout the course of this week. Don't leave here today in pretense. Leave here today in power. Clothe in the strength of the righteousness of Jesus Christ your full confidence in life and death. So Father, that's our prayer and that's our hope and that's our desire today is to know you. God, we wanna know you and the power of your resurrection. Father, in repentance, Lord, we renounce our man-centered efforts to earn this on our own because we can't. But we thank you that we don't have to. You've done it for us through Your son, Jesus. All these things in his name and